I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit wholefoodsmarket.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Wondering what you're going to cook for dinner tonight? There's an app for that. Stay tuned to this episode of Tech Bites. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, and I am sitting in a shipping container in Bushwick, Brooklyn, in the backyard of Roberta's Pizza. And if you know me, you know that means it's time for Tech Bites, the weekly radio show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today, that intersection is an app called Feast Kitchen. And we are joined by its founder, Jacob Janik, who has come from a very, very far way away to join us to talk to us today, which is exciting. But before we get to talking to him, we will do like we always do. We start every episode of Tech Bites like a good meal with an app. And in the U.S., for our foreign visitors, um, app is short for appetizer, like the first course of a meal. So it's a little kind of play on word. And we usually go around the studio and have full participation. And we like to start with David, who just walked out, Mission Control, I'm still here. What are you talking okay. about? I saw you walk by. There was a mirage. Okay. David is our engineer for the show. He is also the studio manager for Heritage Radio. David, what do you got for us today? Do you have an app that you're interested in, intrigued, enthralled with? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to take the opportunity to do a little bit of uh, shameless promotion. Not self-promotion per se, but uh, for the network. Um, I use this app called TuneIn radio uh to get a lot of my podcasts and uh i've just started adding all of the shows on the network to that so uh, it's a very convenient way to subscribe to different podcasts that you like and uh just keep everything in one tidy little place um so tune in radio it's my app for the week so how is tune in radio different from the podcast app itself is that an itunes app podcast i'm on android so i'm not oh okay it's probably very similar, I would imagine, but that's just the one that... It kind of comes preloaded on the iPhone, but you need to have it to download the podcast. The podcast used to just go right into your music library, but now it's a whole separate entity. Was it iTunes, linked to iTunes before? Or? It was, okay. it was. So is there any preloaded podcasting app when you get your No, in the, in the spirit of Android, I guess it's totally bare and uh, oh, right, right, ready for right, you right. to gotcha. tailor to your needs. I knew that. I knew that. Okay. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a group plug, so that's good. 
You downloaded all 65 episodes of Tech Bytes, right? Certainly. First. Yes. <laughs> Which is your favorite one? This one. <laughs> <laughs> so good. He's so politically correct. You should run for office. Well, it That's is an election response. cycle, so you got to exactly. watch what you say. So, Jacob, do you have an app that you like now? And the only rule is you can't talk about an app that you own or have sold. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I've been in this world for a long time. I've only used 30, 40 apps on average day. We were just talking about it on the way over. Um, one of my, I mean, I generally like apps that make my life easier. Um, one of them is a very boring app. It's called Expensify, but it helps me do my reporting in a really easy way. So you get a receipt and you take a photo of it and it automatically systemizes it for me and goes off to the account and is super helpful if you're traveling all the time and need to do that. So, yeah, it's one of my favorite apps right now. Can you spell it for us? Expensify. E-X-P-E-N-S-I-F-Y. Because nowadays, so many of the, um, so many of the apps have such funny spellings mm. that you kind of need to know how to spell things more so than ever because otherwise you won't find them. Yeah, and because you're running out of .com addresses, so you don't have a URL, you don't have a digital company. Exactly. Well, that's why there's .org, which Heritage Radio Network is a .org, but then we also have .ny and then .the country extensions. And but So from an international point of view, is .com still the winning, most desired yeah, URL is. extension? It is. And also, I mean, I, one of the reasons I think is also tactical. It 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 does better for search optimization. So, um, although it, that's probably changing um, now, you also have kitchen, for instance. It doesn't have to be org or uh, or net or com. You can do kitchen. Um, so there are many different types of of URLs, but we generally prefer .com. It works easy, the easiest, uh, and I think it goes across many, many countries without issues. Interesting. I wonder how long it will take for there to be enough inventory of other, of dot somethings to sort of balance out to, because it's a numbers game probably, yeah. right? Yeah, I would imagine. As soon as there are more or equal number of, people just get used to it. I suppose. And I think if you're like, like for instance, dot org, it also... I think it says a lot about what kind of a entity, organization, organization that you're actually building. Yeah. Um, well, it, it, I would imagine that's more of a nonprofit thing than than, than for profit, but it is know, it depends. Absolutely, .org usually denotes the nonprofit yeah. sphere, which Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit. It's a five hundred one c three charity, oh. entirely supported by members like Perfect. Public Radio. Perfect. Yeah. And we're actually in the middle of our summer membership drive, if anybody's listening and is in front of their computer, they can go to the website and click the beating heart and, you know, throw us what you spent in coffee today and we can keep making radio. How much is that membership? Well, right now you can do a personalized membership, like a person, like a regular individual membership for $60 for the year. Mm -hmm. And there are two really notable things that that comes with. And this was not scripted. This is completely spontaneous. Um, but we can see that Jacob is an amazing professional interviewee. 
the $60 personal individual membership for Heritage Radio, you get invited to Heritage Radio events, including member happy hours, where you get to kind of schmooze with like hosts and chefs and other industry folks who are friends of the network. And the fun piece of swag that you get that we'll send to you, you may not know what these are, um, but we have Heritage Radio Network koozies to keep all of your summer beverages cold. Do you have koozies? No. David, do we have any koozies back there? We do, as a matter of fact. Okay, so a koozie, I I feel like it's an American thing. (laughs) And basically, it is a little... Go ahead, come in. Open it up so he can come and see it. It's basically a neoprene sleeve that Uh, you put around a can or a beer bottle or a soda bottle or, you know, for kids, a juice or something. And then it keeps it cold Mm. while you're... You know, on the radio, at the beach, at a picnic, at a barbecue, this is fishing. Awesome. Yeah, so we have the Heritage Radio Network koozies. And that comes with a subscription. Yeah, that comes with the membership. That's like the fun swag that you get oh, for the it. baseline one, 60 bucks. Got totally to worth up. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just Limited edition. Limited edition. <laughs> Last year was t-shirts, and they were pretty great. Anyway, um, so as I said at the top of the show... What are you going to cook for dinner? Cooking, shopping, shopping to cook, learning to cook, ideas to cook. It's a big thing now, kind of worldwide. And Jacob is here because he is the founder of a relatively new app called Feast Kitchen. And they recently, just at the end of June, June 30th, launched their iPad version. That's correct. So he's crossing oceans to tell people about that. So it's an interesting space. We like the space. We like the learning to cook space. Um, And Jacob and I had the opportunity to speak a few days ago. And my first question to him really was, for a little background on him, he founded a little app called Endomondo, which was an exercise fitness tracking app. Yeah, correct. And he and his two co-founders sold it to Under Armour for $85 million. That's correct. Last year. So instead of retiring, which I probably would have done, he decided to do a new app, Feast Kitchen. And, I mean, he could kind of do anything he wanted. Why cooking apps? It's a very crowded space. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of free content that you don't even need an app for. Mm. Um, There are free apps like Epicurious and Mm. things like that, which are pretty robust. So, I mean, all things being equal, why? Yeah. I ask myself that question all the time. Are you asking right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, in between Anamondo and, and Feast, I was uh, living in California for almost four years. And a couple of those years, I was working with my fitness pal, which is a nutrition tracker. And in that whole health and fitness tech uh, industry, and what we've done, a, I think, a really good job at in the past seven, eight years, is to make it very, very easy for people to track what they do. And that comes out in the shape and form of a lot of data. But I, what, I think we've done, both with my fitness plan and I'm on a really good job of doing that. But I don't think that we've done a great job of taking a user, human being, from telling you what you're doing to uh, helping you figure out what to do next, depending on where you want to go or what goal you have or who you are. Um, so I think when we looked at food and we're like, with most things that I do in tech and hence... <clears throat> why am I doing it again is like I'm trying to create products for 
basically myself, really. Like, what, what would I want from this world if I could build it from the ground up, not having legacy, not, you know, not taking into consideration whatever else is, is happening out there? What kind of a product would I build for myself? And that that is really how Feast came about. And one of the things that that I wanted in the food world was, you know, for my 50, 60 cookbooks or however many I have that I never use anymore, but I would love to use them because they have great quality. And one of the things that I think was a missing piece out there is quality. And I think you have an entire industry that is driven by quantity, not so much quality. And it's driven by advertising dollars, which demands quantity and a lot of pages, not so much quality. So that's one of the, another thing that I missed from the industry is intelligence. Like, um, why doesn't the app know who I am? Why doesn't it feed me what I need, like from nutritional needs, seasonality of ingredients, like personal taste needs, what does my social network do? Like, who am I? And why can't that happen automatically and intelligently? And from that, why doesn't this get delivered to my home? And I think ultimately, when you're doing what I do, you know, you, you're, you're trying to think about making life easier for people. And if you're trying to make it easier to live a healthy life, you've got to make it very, very convenient for people to do so. If you don't do it, you're going to fail because everything out there that's convenient is the opposite. You know, if there's, in my view, I think there's way too much bad food and an industry that has gone in the wrong direction for, for many, many years, decades since the Second World War. So if you're trying to make a dent and trying to change that, you've got to kind of start from scratch and make a different experience that is really targeted that kind of a solution, that kind of problem. And I don't think the industry has done a great job so far. So we're making it simped. You, you touch on a couple different things. One is the the quantity versus quality game. And, you know, that's certainly something that we see a lot on the Internet and a lot with digital things where people and companies want to show um, how valuable they are because of the quantity of recipes that they have. We have more recipes in our database than anybody else. Mm. We have more users than anybody else. We have mm. more... Um, the bigger the numbers are, I think, theoretically, the more value the company has, the more valuable it'll be to you know other companies and advertisers. And to your point, you know you could have 100,000 recipes, but are any of them any good? And how do you know if you don't know? Yeah. So certainly there's, you know, nobody, it's a, it's a difficult thing to assess if you don't know anything about cooking. Hmm. So you have to kind of take a leap of faith with whatever the app or cookbook or entity is that you're going to buy into and say, well, I think, you know, I think Feast Kitchen knows what they're talking about. So I'm going to listen to them and believe them when they say this is this is the right way to cook a chicken or this is the right way to, you know, make an egg or this is a great gluten-free recipe. But one, but one of the things, just to touch on that, one of the things that to solve for just exactly that is when you look around out there, it's it's very hard to find credibility and it's it, because most of what you see out there is crowdsourced. It's, and it's, you know, it's it's happened that way through businesses like the ones I've been involved with and that part of the tech industry but I think uh, it doesn't necessarily serve the, the, where I think the tech industry has to go in there, especially in food. Like if, if we in technology can't make it easier to eat better food, I think we're not doing our jobs. Well, the reliability and the accuracy and the vetting of information becomes 
extremely important when you're talking about food and things you put in your body, mm. just generally on the day-to-day basis. But mm. when you take it one step further and you talk about that food being focused towards a nutritional need or a health need where you think you're going to get some desired outcome or result, then it becomes even increasingly serious. Mm. And one of the things that I'm fascinated with and actually have it on my list of, of shows for the fall season is fact-checking and recipe testing mm. in the digital age. And mm. one of the businesses that Jacob was involved with, I, I think, and Mondo was a partner with MyFitnessPal. Mm. And MyFitnessPal is an app that I use that I love that mm. I've talked about on this show before in the app segment. Um, and I like it. It's a little time-consuming, but it's interesting Um, I spend a lot of time sorting through the different entries, which one I think is right, which one is the USDA, which one has that seal of, yes, it's approved, it's accurate. I feel much better when I can scan a barcode into it. Um, But it has one of the most interesting features in it is it has a recipe section where you can plug in a recipe and it'll give you the nutritional count and calories per serving. Mm. And I wonder now, I know that just generally speaking, digital media does not, and media generally the fact-checking systems are very, very different now than it used to be with print. Recipe testing a cookbook, a print cookbook, is a big deal and mm. takes a lot of time. Mm. And most people don't do it. Who's fact-checking the recipes on all the websites and the apps? Are they recipe testing them? Are they being fact-checked? If you are a voracious reader online of recipes... You can almost see the cut and paste that's happening between the Wikipedia entry, the WebMD, the, you know, recipe blogger, the this, the that. They're all going to have kind of the same description, the same recipe, the same this, the same that. And Mm. then we have quantity, but we we have dubious quality, I think. Mm. So it's a really interesting point, recipe testing and fact-checking in the digital age, how do you deal with that if you want to be so comprehensive with your offering for people? Um, first off, you take a leave of faith and you spend the money to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's one of the things, if we really wanted to go on and talk about quality, one of the first things that we realized was quality was a lot harder to achieve than we imagined when we set out to create this, uh, this, this solution. And I think one of the things we didn't realize was how much testing we actually had to do. One of the things I also didn't know at the time was a lot of cookbooks, like physically cookbooks that are like 30, 40, 50 bucks a piece, they're not necessarily tested. Yeah. And it's, that was a surprise. But then you go into the online space and you realize most, like 99% of the content is crowdsourced. Yes. And that for sure is not tested for the most part. But to be fair to some of our competitors, then you do have editorial units that try to do that. But I think in general, that's the real issue. So are you testing recipes? We're testing all the recipes. Where are you testing them? We have about five testers in, in the U.S. Okay. That, uh, you know, test, test the different various recipes. And we have some testers in, in, in Scandinavia. Because the, the app is available in three countries right now? Right now in Danish and English and German. And we're launching in French in Ooh. a month, month or so. Yeah. Okay. So then will you have people testing then theoretically recipes in... So what we do is we Which have we have uh, you know we have U.S. English as our key language, and then we test everything for actually for the U.S. market. So that means it is in the empirical weights and measures, we and do, not we, metric. We do both. Okay. Which has been hard, but because everybody both. outside the U.S. wants metric, and most professional and serious cooks inside the U.S. would probably go metric and weight. Yeah. 
the scale, the kitchen scale. Yeah. But actually that even changes between countries with the same language. Like Germans don't, uh, they actually don't cook and use the same measurements as Danes, which varies from once you go into the UK. So it's actually, it's a lot more complex than just looking at it. But uh, those are the beautiful things you, uh, you realize once you dive in. It sounds like a lot. It is. Are you going to be able to do it? Do you think? Is I, it working? I don't know. I mean, so far, so good. We've, uh, we've crossed the first 100,000 who, you know, downloaded the app and started engaging with it. And that's, um, that's, it's not, it's not a number that we care too much about, but it's obviously, you know, it's, it's not nice to be there five months in. So um, downloads, is that the same as active? No, not for us. And we don't generally disclose our active numbers, right. but what we look at as uh, creating value and what we look at as trying to, to establish whether or not there's something here and whether or not people actually get what we're trying to do is we look at, at people having spent a minute in the app. Like, how do they behave? If you spend a minute in our app, it's because you are interested in recipes and cooking, what have you. And that's the outset. That's where we start looking at users. And we don't, up until now, we've actually not looked at growth at all. We've looked at how do we engage with people? What what uh, what do they love? What what are they missing? What are the features that we should improve? What's not working? Where the hypothesis that we had, which ones were wrong, which ones were right? So that's what we spent the first five months. And you can in pre-launching an app, you know, you test with a couple hundred people. Uh, at least half of them typically, you know, they know you. They don't necessarily tell you the truth. You then go out to the real market in real life and that's that's when you get the real feedback from people that have no idea who you are and what you're trying to achieve so we spent the good four three four months just figuring that out and and so far we're pretty happy with what we see people really stick around once you spend a minute in the app and figure out what we're about we have a i would say a surprisingly high number that keep using us and actually also pay for it and also pay for it yeah We're going to talk about that after the break. We're going to take a little break right now and find out who has helped us pay for this show and hear from our amazing sponsors. Stay with us. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. If you've just tuned in and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the weekly radio show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today that intersection is an app called Feast Kitchen. And we're here with founder Jacob Janik and talking about 
the Learn to Cook app space, which is, I think, just a point of entry for you in terms of what you have a lot of plans. You have a pretty long runway in terms of what you want this app to do beyond just teaching people how to cook and give them a shopping list. So you're very early stages. The app has been around for less than a year, five, five months. months. Once people are cooking and shopping, what are those next pieces that are going to come together that make it a differentiator? Because right now, the, the app is beautiful. It's very well produced. You have high quality on the video, and it's organized, and you have some really beautiful food photography. And I would say very fancy food, you know, things, you know, some beautiful soups that have, like, roses and, you know, <laughs> things like that. It's It seems a little fancy. Um, and you have some great names, but... You know, Seamus Mullen is on your app, and he's wonderful, and I really like him and his point of view, and he's great. But he's also on the Panna Cooking app, and he's in other apps, and you can, you know, find videos and learn how to cook from him in lots of other places. So on the surface right now, what's the, what's the secret sauce or the differentiator? I think, I think right now where we're at is I think we're – most of our competitors, that's their end game. That's the final result. It's like... So your starting point is their end point. I think so, yeah. It's, it's, I think, you know, where technology is going, where food is going, it, it obviously depends a lot from the different products you're building and companies you're building, what actually suits you. But at least in the food tech world, it's been all about advertising and it's been all about traffic. And it hasn't really changed, whereas in a lot of other industries, this has actually changed. And I think you're creating businesses that are way more sound if you're solving a problem with a product that people actually really love and they're willing to pay for. And if you can get to that point, you've got, you've got the foundation to be able to create something that actually lives on for a lot longer and is less prone to whatever happens out there in the advertising industry. And I think that's, that's so that if you, if you realize or if you think that hypothesis is true, that the world is changing towards that, then you also want to build you, you want to, there's a second aspect of this is which is we're not building to display we're not building to sell traffic we're building to solve a problem that means that we're creating a tool so what we have now is the foundation upon which we're going to create that tool and that's I think so when you look at it right now the tool the foundation was high quality great pictures great UI videos that are deeply integrated in the recipes recipes that are tested they scale they actually test it we, we not just scale it linearly it's actually scaled and the shopping list that are working great, et cetera. What, what that foundation is giving us is just, a, I think, a right to have a conversation right now. From then on, what you're going to see us and the opportunities that we see is we think technology in general um, has a need to improve people's life. If it doesn't do that, it's hard for us to see a sustainable business over time. In order to do that, you've got to make people's lives better. And for us, that means in the cooking space... One of the things that we think it means is that we have to know who you are. We have to be extremely relevant to you. We have to make your life easier so that you get to cook and spend time in your kitchen, which is where the good energy comes from, uh, more than you have to search hours on end, spend a lot of time in the supermarkets or in online supermarkets, more than you have to search for article after article trying to teach you what to eat, etc. Those things should be built in. That should be intelligence. We're a data-driven company. We can see what you need. So let me throw you out some examples to illustrate what we're trying to do. 
let's say that um, let's say that you're a, a newlywed couple and you're deciding to get kids. The first thing that happens, actually, both for 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 uh, for the male and the female, is like you go like, whoa. What does that actually mean to me? That's a point in life where most people start thinking about what do I put in my mouth? And then you go searching and you go to the doctor and they talk and they tell you a lot of stuff, most of which you'll never remember. Then you go on to books and magazines and you read on forever and ever and ever. And if you tell us as a technology company that you're pregnant, we will know based on how we can scan the recipes and the scientifically backed science on that, we will know what to return. You then add that you're an athlete or you're a runner or you've got high blood pressure or in the case of Seamus Mullen, rheumatoid arthritis. Like we will know what that means in terms of what we would then have to serve you from a nutritional perspective. We then, you know, we look at the ingredients. When are they in season? And why doesn't that play into a factor when thinking about what we should uh, suggest that you're eating? And that that demands intelligence and that demands data in around that. And it kind of goes back to the beginning. That de- demands a lot of data. Mm. And you kind of have, you take a leap into a space where you do need volume at mm. this point then. If you're going to, you know, take in 15 or 20 different data points of entry, creating a profile on a person's, nutritional life and and what they need and then deliver them back you know recipes and a shopping list that are perfect for them you're going to need a a, a wealth of information Mm. a lot a lot of information from all those different points you you mentioned just in describing the initial situation so many very very specific nutritional needs like how that sounds like a big big data pool so you this have is to the, build. So huh. this is the thing about this is for an average human being, this is an insurmountable uh, amount of information that you have to, to go through. It's You just don't, you're not capable of doing it. But from an, an, an algorithmic point of view, this is not hard. Right. But you still need to have all the information to serve something up. Yeah. So You still need to have all the the points to enter in. I mean, what, th- we also discussed this a, a few days ago when we had our initial conversation and I said... That's great. So I can create a profile and say I'm I'm gluten free, and I'm a vegan. But if you only had one gluten free vegan recipe, yeah. If and your algorithm was like, oh, we need to pull the recipe from here, and then I just kept getting the same one, it wouldn't be great. That's totally it would right. be working. It would be delivering the information based on but my profile. But it wouldn't profile. deliver on the promise. But I would just get one recipe. So at some point, you do need volume. That's true. It's also, I mean, we structure this. We don't go out and cater to 16 profiles from the get-go. We're we're at, uh, we've passed 800 recipes at this point. I think we have to go to about two, two and a half thousand recipes to be able to... Per country? No. Well, actually, no. We actually internationalize these. Okay. What we realized very early on is that... Uh, with some chefs that are from one particular country, what we can do is we can put the other chefs in play. And that's great. That means that the, the, the database of recipes that we have, they work in all countries. So what we need to do is solve for is the data aspect of this and then the translation localization of it. But once that's done, you know, that, that means I think we have to go to, to a certain number of recipes, but actually fewer than you think to solve for these, solve for these things. Okay. It seems like a lot to me, but maybe i'm not thinking like algorithmically like a processor <laughs> i do wonder though 
And I, I agree with all the points of technology making people's lives better and the food we eat and the choices we make making our lives better, having a domino effect of making our families' lives better, neighbors, community, world, you know, all those things. Yes, yes, and yes. But again, I go back to the recipes and the chefs and, and things like that. Seamus is kind of a fancy chef. I mean, he's a fancy chef in New York City. Some of the recipes seem fancy to me iPad users, iPhone users, are you kind of preaching to the choir? Are you creating tools to make people's lives better who are already having good lives and eating good food and know who Seamus Mullins is? I mean, is it, is it as impactful? Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, both and. I think when you realize where you want to go, the next question is how, what path do I have to pursue to get there? And if we started talking to everybody, we would be talking to nobody. So for sure, yes, to begin with, we're preaching to the choir. But we're going to go out from there. And a point on the recipes is actually what we've done is we've gone out to about 40 chefs so far. Some of them are very high end. But we've given them a, a, a task saying, you need to create recipes that you can create in 20 to 40 minutes. So I would say that more than 50% of the recipes that are on there they actually meet that criteria. And when you when you've even got the first category, we've got to search is like quick dinner fixes. A lot of them are done in 20, 25 minutes. And if you're a good chef, like in your home kitchen, it's done in less. And we actually timed it, not optimistically, but actually how most people would cook in their own kitchen. So a lot of this has been really focused on making this easy, easy to create. And at the same time, knowing who our target group is to begin with is... Uh, there's still there's also going to be challenges. There's got to be something that excites the very very avid home cook, and so it's it's kind of in that in that game that we're playing. But yes, to answer your question, to begin with, we are somewhat preaching to the choir, but we're expanding from there. And it's just to keep you know when you're solving for a problem, it's a lot easier to have a very very targeted human being in mind and then broaden up than going the other way about it. Absolutely. I mean, I think you can, if, if there, there's that saying where it's jack of all trades, master of none, where if you are kind of everything to all people, then, you know, to your point, you're kind of nothing mm-hmm. to anyone. Um, but it is definitely a group of people that is ready, willing, and able with disposable income. And one of the things that we've talked about on this show and some of the other shows on the network is, where is the increase in productivity with the increase in technology? Because historically, every time there's a big invention or milestone in technology, that has increased human productivity. And one of the things that I believe is that technology today and a lot of the apps um, that people love are buying you time to do something not necessarily productive in the industrial sense, like Instacart and all those things are buying you time. So you can have time to do something else, probably not working. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting time in that technology is maybe moving, you know, people, the quality of people's lives forward, but it's in some interesting ways, not moving like the collective productivity forward the same way the steam engine and the light bulb and you know some of those other landmark things have done and when you talk about you know sort of the already um 
the already well-off people who, you know, have iPads and iPhones like myself. You know, I love to cook. I want more time. I want to be better, healthier, happier. I'm kind of already doing it, mm-hmm. you know? Here's the thing, though. When we started in Amundo, um, this was back in 2008, we looked at, I was head of product, you know, that's, that's I come in from a product perspective on things. And I looked at Garmin, I looked at Polar, I looked at, you know, the watches out there that you would pay anything from 150 to 300 bucks for a watch. And you're looking at the experience and you're like, okay, I put this watch on my, on my wrist, I go for a run, I go back home, I plug it to a computer, I open up a proprietary program, I export in a data format that doesn't go anywhere. And then you're like, what if this all happened automatically on a phone? You're creating an experience that was, you know, so much better at the time. The percentage of people that owned a, a sports sports watch, a sports tracking watch, was less than one percent, right? maximum. That's that's high high number. Today, like in Amando in Scandinavia, it's like twenty five thirty percent of the population. So by nature of creating a tool that's so much better than what it used to be, you're expanding the market. You're changing a lot of more people's lives. But when you think about how we how we went about that challenge. You were, we were hyper-focused on the people that were already into sports. That was the target group. But it doesn't take away. And like, what makes me proud today about that company is you, hit, you, you touched so many people. And you touched it by creating a tool that really worked. And then you combined social features on top of it, which was what motivated people. And that's where the expansion came from. That's where people stay engaged. And I think it's an aspect that we haven't talked about today yet. But you know, actually, I think in the world of cooking, there's a lot to be learned from those analogies. And I would argue it's the same in my fitness pal. It was a tool that, that made the, the problem of tracking what you eat infinitely better than what it used to be. And I think today it's still by far the best product out there. So it's like, I think that that's where technology come in. And I think we would love to do the same in, in the world of cooking. So we, we're getting close, very close to running out of time. Um, but to that sort of continuing the thought about you know changing people's lives as well as you know the chefs that you work with in terms of creating the content i typically don't do this kind of thing on my show um but i'm gonna make a i'm gonna make a suggestion to you and i'm gonna (laughs) offer to introduce you to somebody because i think it would be potentially really uh a great great collaboration one of the first guests on my very first show of Tech Bytes, um, a long time ago, it was winter. I had the Forbes 30 Under 30. I had some of the winners in the food category on the show. And one of them was a woman named Leanne Brown. And Leanne Brown was on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list because she created a cookbook that was a PDF called Good and Cheap, and she posted it online for people to download for free as a free PDF cookbook. And it was called Good and Cheap, and it was how to cook and feed yourself and your family on $4 a day as your budget, because $4 a day turns out to be what the uh, daily monetary budget is if you're a family on uh, an assistance or you know support program from the government. It winds up being you have about four dollars a day, which is not a huge amount of money to cook and feed a family. And so she she did this, 
and it got tens of thousands of downloads from people because the interesting thing you know to what we're talking about before is people who probably need to learn to cook the most have the least opportunity to do that. And so the the free download cookbook became a a very, very successful thing. She partnered with different entities. Um, She brought out a print version of the book, and there are times when it's a buy one, someone gets one. They're beautiful recipes. They're beautiful. They're photographed. They're delicious. They're amazing. They span many, many different, um, you know, types of food, culturally, breakfast, snacks, all of that. But having a Leanne Brown as one of your chefs doing her $4 a day, good and cheap, would kind of put a stake at the other end of the spectrum Mm. for you. And it would create a really interesting, I think, you know, it would create an interesting dialogue. It would be an interesting counterpoint the recipes would certainly stand up to, you know, many of the others, especially if they went through your beautiful production process. Mm-hmm. That that might be that might be a very interesting thing. So she comes out of the, you know, a similar idea and a similar theory from you mm-hmm. using technology to give people access to something that's going to help their lives vis-a-vis cooking good food and the fact that she could make a pdf and park it on a website for like no money because making a pdf and putting it on a website that people could download for free was a technology that made it really work Hmm. so i throw that out to you she's a great lady she's a lot of fun she's episode number one tech bites guest number one so there's a little tech bites heritage in there um, but I think she'd be a great person for you to meet. I think you should take a look at it. And even, you know, if it didn't uh, develop into something else, it might be something conceptually for down the line because I'm sure there's other people like her in other countries and other cities, and you're going to be international. You are international. so Can I spend 30 seconds commenting on that? Yes, please do. Awesome. That, so that, that's, my, that's my thing that I usually don't do. I usually <laughs> don't editorialize things, and I save it for after, but... It just was such a strong thought that I thought we should talk about it on the air. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, first off, I'd love to meet her. Um, secondly, I think we've, we've actually added a lot of chefs that are not high-end, and it's for the same purpose. If you only add the Seamus Mullen and uh, the Marcus Samuelson and the Dan Barbers of the world... Uh, you're going to scare off a lot of people. And that's not the attention. For us, it's a credibility thing. It's because we want to stand for quality. We bring these on. Uh, as a testament to, uh, to where you're going to see us go, and I can, see, I can say this now because I'm not sure we're going to be public about this in the U.S., but I just signed up as an ambassador for the Red Cross in, in Denmark. And one of the things that's on the agenda is raising as much money as we possibly can. It's 10 people a year that sign up. We're going to use Feast for that. And as you, I'm sure everybody is aware of, there is a big refugee crisis in, in Europe. And because we're a privately owned company, we and actually... And in the world, just sort of generally. Yeah, generally in the world. Europe but and right the now, world. Europe and the world, but I think in the past year, Europe has been yeah. really taking some hard hits. And we're, we're going to... You know, because we're in the U.S., and I know this is going to go live in many other countries, but I think you'll see us make uh, attempts in that direction to go out and actually raise money. And it's not going to go towards 
money per se. It's going to go to Red Cross, but it's going to be about how many families, how many refugee families can you help get food on the table by uh, subscribing a feast. And we're going to put a lot, uh, like a very high percentage of what we get in there. That's great. I mean, I think in today's world, in the current landscape, businesses have to have some sort of social awareness, enterprise, conscientiousness, either for the for people or the planet in some way, shape, or form, because consumers are really aware of that. Mm. And consumers spend a lot of money today, but they really want to spend it someplace that makes them feel good, not just about the thing that they're going to bring home, but what's going to happen later mm. with their money. So, But for us, but for us it's, it's, not, it's not only about the the consumer it's like it's also the ability to do what what we think as a company is the right thing to do and it's like yeah it, but this is going to turn into a political conversation so i'm not going to go there but well we're dot org it's, it's okay we can be political <laughs> but it's <laughs> food it's a, is political <laughs> food is politics right so look now. at where tech is I going mean, like some of the some of the guys that i look up to the most what are, what are they doing they're building companies and they're actually part of that they're trying to you know make their big dent in the world whether it's facebook or whether it's tesla whatever it is that are massively changing the world and uh, you know to me that's a source of inspiration and and you know we're we're nowhere near as big as those guys but it's 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 pretty aspirational to try to say okay how how can we help in this equation and there's something that we can do as a product to to take us there we would more than love to do so well food is a great way to do it and you know food is one of the things that has such a such a powerful domino effect from you know your single experience with it through to the person sitting next to you and then your family and again you know your community your country you know your farmer's market there's so many people that are impacted by the choices you make about what kind of food you're going to eat that it's really um one of the reasons why i think in the startup space entrepreneurs and people who are inspired by solving problems gravitate towards food because it is such a huge problem and so many ways and shapes and forms but if pieces of it could be solved it would have such a tremendous solution effect you know the high tide raising all ships as it were but unfortunately this is all the time that we have today uh, to talk about feast kitchen and to talk with jacob um i think we could talk probably much much longer I might have to talk to them about getting like a two-parter show or more time. Every season, every year that comes by, I ask for more time, and I'm incrementally working my way up. It started off as 30 minutes, now we're 45. <laughs> Maybe we'll go to an hour in 2017. I want to thank Jacob for coming out to Bushwick, David for being here, Heritage Radio listeners for keeping us on the air, becoming members, getting your drink koozies, and our amazing sponsors. If you like this show... Come back and see us next week. If you love it, go to iTunes, subscribe to it, give it a five-star rating. I'm Jennifer Lietzi. This is Tech Bytes. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.